religion. In fact, there's, there's a lot of people that have this idea. Even people that are believers, people that hear the gospel and become born again, which, by the way, I hope that's you. I hope there's been a time where you've heard the word of God. And then as Jesus spoke about in John chapter 5, verse 24, you believed on him uh, and you were passed from death unto life. And you became a saint. You became a Christian. You, your name was written in the book of life. Your sins were washed in the blood of Christ. You will never perish. And no one can pluck you out of the Father's hands. And I hope that describes you. Now if it does... There's a lot of believers, a lot of Christians that have this idea that I don't need to, I don't need organized religion. I don't need to, I don't need to be a part of some church. I worship God my own way. And then there's a famous or a very popular aspect of doctrine that they love to, to hold on to. And it's something that has been embraced by believers down through the ages. And it's something called the universal church. You ever heard of the universal church? Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13, Paul says this. And by the way, I think this is probably the text that Charlie's going to get to either next week or the next few weeks because he's right in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So I won't go too much on this. But here's, here's the verse that talks about that. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. There is in the Bible the teaching of what's called the universal church. And Bible believers down through the ages have understood that when someone gets saved, they are part of the body of Christ, made up since the day of Pentecost till the end of the church age of people that have been genuinely born again, placed, taken out of Adam and placed into Christ. And if so... And by the way, there's no denomination, the universal church, uh, there's, there's people, you know, the gospel preaching churches have more members in the universal church because people are saved that hear the gospel. But there's even churches that do not preach the gospel where someone reads the Bible and they get saved and they're part of the universal church. In fact, when you read church history, the phrase that was originally used to describe the universal church is the word Catholic. In fact, you may have heard of the Apostles' Creed. I remember as a Catholic getting saved and going to a Protestant church and hearing the Apostles' Creed, which was a bunch of Protestants saying, we believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. Like, what? wait a minute, I thought, what? I thought I'm not a Catholic anymore. I didn't know how that was. And I came to understand that Catholic... Is not that that term originally wasn't referring to Rome and the church in Rome, it was referring to the universal church. That's what the word Catholic means universal. So I hope now you're gonna, you know, some of you may revolt. A Baptist is saying this. I hope you're part of the Catholic church, the genuine, universal, born again, you, you've been born again, blood washed, and then you are part of the universal church in its truest sense. And I hope that's the case. Um, but here, here's the challenge now. If you are part of the universal church, what place does the local church have? Is there a place for the local church? And that's where we, we come into this idea of bishops and deacons. 
See, that's a reference to two offices that we'll talk about in a little bit. And here's what happens whenever, and you read this in the New Testament, and we're going to look at uh, one example, and I think it's Ephesians, that when Paul went, or, or Peter, they went into a town or a city and preached the gospel, when people got saved, the, the very next thing, well, first of all, what they would do is they would get baptized. And when you look through the book of Acts, what happened was those that heard the word and then believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and then after that were baptized, then God added them to the church. But not just the universal church, but they then gathered together in an organized way to form local churches. And part of what apparently the process was, was once you found a group of people that got saved, remember the gospel was brand new in that first century, you got a bunch of people that were saved in one location, then they would organize, and part of the plan early on was to, to start a membership, and then to have leaders, organization. And so that's how it began. But let's look at this for a minute real quickly. Organized religion. You know, five times the New Testament uses the word religion or religious. Three times Paul speaks of religion that had gone bad. He was part of it. In fact, in Acts chapter 26 and verse 5, he says that he, after the most straightest sect of our religion, he says, I lived a Pharisee. And the most straightest, straight is an old English word for strict. Paul followed a strict religion. And then he says in Galatians 1.13, Again, you've heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God. That's an interesting verse because that communicates there's a difference. Back in, in Paul's day, there was a difference between organized religion, what Paul was part of, and the church. So there is a bad connotation, and some, once you understand it, organized religion can be a very bad thing. And then in Galatians 1.14, the next verse, he said, And profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. And that's a key there. There's good religion, there's good organized religion, that's what God started and there's bad organized religion. And that's when men, gets in, men get involved and mess things up, basically. Um, so let's talk about this. I want you to listen. You don't need to turn here. But in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, we're going to answer three questions in the next half hour. First of all, how can organized religion be bad? Because it is does have negative connotations. But then secondly, how can or, uh, organized religion be good? And then what we're going to do is, is see... How God organized true religion. And so I'm, today, I don't, I don't care whether you're religious or not. Because that could be good and it could be bad. You're a part of a, are you a member of a church? Could be good, could be bad. Are you religious? Could be good, could be bad. The key is not, are you part of organized religion? But are you a part of God's organization? That's the key. Because God is doing something in this day and age. So listen to 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1. How organized religion can be bad. 
Paul said this. He said, now the Spirit speaketh expressly, very clearly, God has spoken, that in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. There is, according to Paul, according to the New Testament, there's something going on, and it's been going on since the beginning of the church, and it is called a falling away. The Greek word that Paul uses here is apostasy. It's where we get the word apostasy, to fall away from the faith. You see, there's something that's been happening since the first century, even before that where people who once embraced true religion fell away from the faith. It's kind of like gravity. Over time, the tendency is for people not to get closer to God, but to get further away from God. So when you study church history, you will study that there originally were a lot of, you know, when the church began, there were organizations, there were uh, organized religions started, with pastors and deacons, or bishops and deacons, and, uh, and they were in every location. And in fact, that's who Paul wrote these letters to. The church in Philippi with the pastors and deacons. This was God's organization. But what happened over the years is they compromised God's word, and it, it will not stop until the Lord comes. So you have entire churches, entire denominations, that once stood for the truth of the word of God and over the years have compromised and many of them no longer believe the Bible. But if you study their history, many of them, oh, great, great testimonies of of the gospel going forth. So I want to read to you from, um, there's a reference I I will often refer to this and you know, it's a website that's available and, and it's pretty accurate. Um, and, and pretty, you know, very, it, in fact, it's written by dozens and dozens and dozens of different people that are Bible believers, but there's no website, folks, where you don't need to be a Berean, where you don't need to be say, okay, is this really true? But there's a website called gotquestions.org, which is from pretty much like-minded believers, which will often give you biblical per- answers to questions. So uh, I'm going to read to you some quotes today. Uh, Just in this idea of organized religion, uh, they brought out some very good things that I think would help us. First of all, they said religion is belief in God, capital G, or God, small g, to be worshipped, usually expressed in conduct and ritual. Another definition of religion, any specific system of belief or worship, often involving a code of ethics. And then they go on and say this. The Bible speaks of organized religion, but in many cases, organized religion is not something God is pleased with. First example they give, in Genesis chapter 11, they say perhaps the first instance of organized religion is the descendants of Noah organized themselves to build the Tower of Babel instead of obeying God's command to fill the entire earth. And what did they do? They believed that unity was more important than relationship with God. Isn't that interesting? See, God said, go, be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. And they said, you know what, we got a better idea. We just want to stick together and build a, a big tower up to, up to God so we can have worship our own way. And that did not please God. And so that could very well, you know, technically, that could be the first instance of organized religion. 
Or you could call it organized rebellion against God. In in Exodus chapter 6, as we follow through, God actually organized a religion for the nation of Israel. He gave the Ten Commandments. He gave laws regarding the tabernacle and the sacrificial system. They were all instituted by God and followed by the Israelites. That was legitimate, organized religion. In fact, all these Leviticus, Exodus, Deuteronomy, they were all given. So this new started religion called Judaism could be structured, organized, 100% legitimate. It was God's way. The New Testament, I'll talk about that in a minute. Throughout Israel's history, however, you know they were organized to be a religion that would worship Yahweh. But throughout the years of Israel, they, they, they combated organized religion. Um, they, they had great conflict with organized religion. In, um, in Judges 6 and 1 Kings chapter 18, Israel was challenged with the organized religion of the worship of Baal. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, they faced the organized religion of Dagon. In 2 Kings chapter 23... They faced the organized religion of Moloch. And so they had all these organized religions, the religions of the Canaanites, the pagan religions, were organized religion, but not to worship Yahweh. Now let's fast forward. I mentioned Judaism. It was organized. It began by God. It was given. I mean, God gave the Ten Commandments very clearly. You can't have a better foundation than directly from God. But over the years... Man corrupted it. So now Jesus comes on the scene, first century, and you've got this this group of people called the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees. And they had an organized religion under the name of Judaism. But it was not. In fact, Jesus used his most severest terms of condemnation were against this organized religion that had corrupted itself. So there's a a proper place for organized religion, and there's a improper place. Uh, in fact, organized religion has often been the bane of true religion. Here's the key. Here's what we're going to find out. What is the difference? True religion... See, here's... Religion is man trying to work his way toward God, trying to, to do what he can do to earn favor with God. And so he usually comes up with all these man-made or even using some of the God-given commandments to try to make their way to God. That would be organized religion. Christianity, which is organized, is more of a relationship. In fact, it's God reaching down to us. He's the initiator. He's the one. And he doesn't require his to be part of His organized religion is not based on what you do, your performance. It's based on what Jesus did on the cross. We preach that so much here. I hope it gets in your mind. If you are part of an organized religion that is all a matter of trying to work your way to God, you're not. You are in organized religion, but it's not the one that God organized. The the one that Paul wrote to to the saints in Philippi with the pastors and bishops, 
bishops and deacons rather. These were people who were born again by faith. And, and I like what the or, um, GodQuestions.org makes this clarification. It said, instead of looking at it as organized religion, we could look at Christianity as organized relationship. Because that's what it is. So I, I, don't, I don't want you to be a part of organized religion. I want you to be a part of an organized relationship with Jesus Christ. Very important distinction. How does that happen? Through the word of God. The Bible says faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And when you study church history, you will see that, that churches, church, the church itself began by God. What did Jesus say? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And, and he, he built his church. But unfortunately, the... the the devil has corrupted it. And so what's happened throughout history is man gets in there, just like the first century, they had something which would end up being called Judaism. And from the beginning, people tried to add works to the gospel and get them back into Judaism, circumcision, and some of the, the, the things that God initially established. And so you had that. But you know what? Even in the uh, organized religions down through the ages, there have been people that have studied God's word in those organized religions that had gone way astray, way astray, and they'd read the word of God and they become a part of the universal church. They'd get saved. I go back just thinking of this. Uh, you know, there's been throughout the ages, there's been a, a push. I think the devil has used. Uh, language, language changes. In fact, since the since the fall of, of the Babylonian, the Tower of Babel, where God confused the languages, uh, it seems to be a tool of the devil to try to blind people uh, to the gospel. And so, historically, for example, I've mentioned this recently that um, there was this thing when you study church history, there was a major schism in. Um, 10, what was it? 1054. It's called the Great Schism, the East-West Schism. Um, the, uh, and, and what it was was the church, the church organized religion, which still had the gospel in it, separated into the East and the West. And the, um, the Western uh, branch, the main religion was, was Latin. And the Eastern branch, the main religion was Greek. And let's just talk about the example. The one that was in Latin, um, they ended up having a Bible in their own language, in Latin. And you know that for 1,100 years, to that side of, of the world, in Europe, Latin, you know, when people got saved, they got saved because they read the language in their own tongue. And it was called the Vulgate. You know what Vulgate means? Vulgar, not like we think of vulgar. Vulgar simply meant the common tongue. And so for, for hundreds of years, God used the Latin translation to reveal his word. But as time went on, pretty soon Latin went by the wayside. And pretty soon, very few people knew Latin. And so the common man did not have a language of their own. In fact, at, at, at the time... 
uh, Greek ended up taking over. And so a guy by the name of Erasmus, who was part of the organized religion, part of the church, but he had some understanding that the Bible was important. And he made this quote, which would end up be quoted, being quoted by another person who did similar. Desiderius Erasmus, again, he was, he was a priest in a huge organized religion that had lost its way. And he, he said this about the scriptures and the need to get a Bible in the common tongue. He said, I would have these words, scriptures, translated into all languages so that not only Scots and Irish, but Turks and Saracens, that's the, uh, from the Arabian desert, uh, historically that at times also meant, uh, referred specifically to Muslims. He said, so that not only Scots and Irish, but Turks and Saracens too might read them. And then he said this, I long for the plowboy to sing them to himself as he follows his plow, for the weaver to hum them to the tune of his shuttle, for the traveler to beguile, and that's an old English word at the time, it meant um, literally to divert someone's attention in a good way. Now it's got a negative uh, connotation. But the traveler to beguile with them the dullness of his journey. His desire was to get the word of God in the language of the people so they could understand it. Because that's how God saves souls. If you don't understand the Bible, you don't understand how God has communicated you might very well get deceived under organized religion. And then and then, 100, 100 or so more years later, William Tyndale would say something very similar, probably based on this quote, but he got in an argument with a priest from the organized religion. And at that time of William Tyndale, there was a Bible needed in English more than ever before. Because Latin, the Vulgate, had now become obsolete and most common, the plowboy, the, the, the weaver, did, could not, they didn't know the Bible. So here's what, here's what William Tyndale said to this priest who did not know the scriptures. He said, if God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy who drives a plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. <laughs> and so you know what? William Tyndale dedicated his life to get the Bible in the common tongue of English. And he died. He was martyred. Because the devil does not want people to get the Word of God in their understanding. So, how can organized religion be good? Uh, and again, this, this reference I'm quoting here. Religion is man's attempt to have communion with God. The Christian faith is a relationship with God because of what He has done for us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There is no plan to reach God. He has reached out to us. And that's the important thing. And I want to emphasize this again. I hope that you have come to God empty-handed. Now, religion, if you want to know if you're in the wrong religion, you're coming to God with what you can offer Him. Lord, I give you this. Lord, I give you this, my, my religious deeds, my certificate of whatever it was religiously. I'm giving all this to you because I'm hoping to please you. I'm hoping my good works will gain favor with you if you're doing that. You know what God says? Of all our righteousnesses, they are filthy rags. 
So what you've got to do is, what Paul did, he cast all that aside and he came empty-handed because Jesus came down to die for us so we could have a relationship with him. There's a phrase that I hope... I've been thinking about this a lot because it's it's been debated for many, many years. There's a term you will not find in the Bible, but historically it's a legitimate term, and it's the term legalism. You ever heard of legalism? Basically what legalism is, it, it is it would be... Judaism or um, the uh, what is it called the Judaizers of the first century, they were legalists. They were trying, and Paul dealt with this in Galatians and some of the other epistles. Judaism or excuse me, uh, legalism tries to. It says you have to do something to gain favor with God. Getting back under the law, it's what you. It's the you know the do's and don'ts. Your religious ordinances, your religious deeds, by, by your performance, that's how you get to God. Legalism is a bad thing, always. And, um, but sometimes people will use legalism in, in a misunderstood way. And sometimes people will call something legalism that isn't. And yet, there's also... See, I, I've come to understand. Many years ago, I've shared this... In more in depth, but many years ago, God had God's God's always had to teach me something, you know. And, and um, early on, as a new Christian, uh, I was not wise financially. And if you want some examples, my wife will be glad to tell you examples because she was wise financially, and I, I had to learn. Uh, and, and in fact, she married a guy that was not wise financially, and she suffered because of it. That's what happens. You know, when you got you married someone that's stupid with money, um, it creates a lot of pressure, you know, and the Lord had to teach me. And I've come to realize as I've gotten my financial house in order that um, and there's you know, I know that to this day, there's still people that are floundering around and uh, they make the same mistakes I made. And, and, and finances can be finances is, is given as one of the major reasons for people to divorce. So it, it, it's I know it's tough. I know the tension that's there, but I dabbled with with uh, getting my financial house in order for many years. I dabble with it. I'd make a little good decision here, who pat me on the back, little good decision over here, but I was still a mess, and I had to I had to realize, you know what, I got to get serious about this. And so for years, here's the way I describe it: I need to start getting legalistic about this idea of finances, you know. I need to start applying biblical principles, living within my means, and I need to get legalistic about it. But the more I've, and, and so I've, I use that in my mind at least for years. But the more, I, the more I've chewed on that and studied what, what I, the idea of legalism is, that's not the word, that's not the proper word to use. And, and this is also true in other areas of discipline, uh, one of which I'm really working on now. Um, but I don't use the word legalist anymore because legalist implies that you have to do this in order to gain favor with God. The term that I've used now is we got to get militant. You know, like with finances, if you're really messed up financially, you may need to get militant in applying biblical principles more than other people just to get your financial house in order or in other areas of disciplines. You may need to start getting militant. That means really serious. Really vigorous, but using the word legal, I got to really get legalistic about that. 
That's, that's never right because you're saying, I got to do this in order to gain favor with God. And that's off the table. Because God, remember, we're saints. What are saints? Imperfect people. Called, in fact, the word means holy or sanctified. We are set apart to God. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. We are to grow holier. But folks, the idea of legalism all across the board is you have to earn your favor with God. Praise God. That's not how it is. Because folks, who could ever be militant enough in all the areas of disciplines in the Bible to be right with God. Only one person, and his name is Jesus Christ. So let's go to, um, so we're talking, so let's, let's study, what's the word organized mean? The word organized uh, comes from the word for organ, you know, like your heart, your liver, and it has the idea of composed of parts Connected and coordinated for vital functions of processes. Living. Now, by the way, the church is a living organism. Remember Paul? In Ephesians chapter 4, he said, From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth. The church is a living organism made up of people. And it's organized. Here's another definition for organized. Formed into a structured whole systematically ordered and arranged, having a formal organizational structure to arrange or coordinate. Now, I want you to take your Bibles now and turn to Ephesians chapter... Ephesians chapter 1. No, that's not it. Titus chapter 1. Turn to Titus chapter 1. Trying to... uh, Whittle things down real quick here. See, here's, here's, here's the key. This is where organized religion... God started the church, which was organized. From the very first century, when people got saved, they were added to the church. Not just the Catholic universal church, they were added to the local church. In other words, they would be connected with people. In fact, if Paul was ever in a city too too quickly, like in other words, people got saved, you had a lot of people that were born again, but they hadn't yet organized a church, then Paul, that, that was in order. And so look what Paul wrote in, um, where did I tell you to go? Where was it again? Titus, Titus 1. So Paul is writing to Titus, the largest island, the Greek island, Crete, And he says in verse 5, For this cause left I thee in Crete. So Paul, on his missionary's journeys, he would sometimes drop off one of the disciples to start organizing because he would go in and preach the gospel. People would get saved. He would disciple them a little bit. But if they hadn't fully organized into a church, he would leave someone to either pastor. For example, Timothy, he left at Ephesus. And now Titus, he said, I left in Crete. Why? Why did Paul leave Titus in Crete? That thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting. In other words, he wasn't finished. There was work to be done on Crete. He had a bunch of believers, a bunch of new Christians, but they hadn't yet fully been organized. And he said, Titus, 
I'm going to leave here. I'm going to leave you here so that you can set in order the things that are wanting or lacking. And what was that? Ordain elders in every city. Now, we don't have time to go into the... um, I can give you three scriptures where the Bible seems to indicate pretty clearly that a pastor and a bishop and an elder are all the same thing. So when Paul was writing to Philippi and he said to the bishops and deacons, bishop was an office, same thing as a pastor and an elder. And so here's the verse, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. It uses those three terms interchangeably, either the English word or the Greek words behind it. Acts chapter 20, verse 17 and verse 28. And then this one we're looking at now. Let's look at it. Acts, or Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanted, wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I have, had appointed thee. And then he says in verse 7, for a bishop must be... Wait a minute. I thought he was talking about elders. He was. But the word elder, the word pastor, and the word bishop are all referring to the same office. And historically, those that have followed the Bible, for the most part, have understood that. Uh, So you have churches that are, you know, where generally there are two offices, pastor and deacon, or bishop and deacon, or elder and deacon. Now, some Presbyterian churches have elders and pastors and deacons, and they would take a different twist to take on this. But historically, especially independent Baptists, that's, that's how we understand it. So it is organized. Think of what Paul said. I've left you in Crete. Because if I left now, things are out of order. Is order bad? No. You know that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14... Paul was writing to the church in Corinth and they had so many problems. They were disorganized and they were worshiping wrong and and it was just a mess. And when Paul wrote to them in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 14, he said to them, he said, you got to take care of this. He was basically setting things in order, but not when it came to ordaining elders. He said, um, let all things be done decently and in order. And in that same chapter, he said, God is not the author of confusion. So God is very much for organized religion if it's organized relationship. In other words, God wants us all to be in a relationship with one another. God wants us to be a part of a a local assembly that has some leadership structure. And we won't go into this, but there's responsibilities for pastors to equip the flock. And for believers that are just worshiping God their own way and not part of a church, they're not joining together and they're not fulfilling all the one another commands of Scripture. See, to part, be a part of a New Testament church, you fulfill. Just take up your look up in a, on an on a online Bible uh, app. Look up the phrase one another or one to another in the New Testament. And folks, there's verse after verse after verse, that tells us that God wants us to be a part of an organized body of believers to encourage one another in our relationship with God. So organization is not a bad thing. Not at all. There is a a story, this is an interesting story about organization. Um, 
and I'm a little bit OCD, I will admit. Um, there's a guy named, uh, this guy that was in um, the 10th century. He was the Grand Vizier of Persia. His name was Abdul Qasem Ismail. And uh, he was noted for his library of books. He had 117,000 books. And on many of his travels as a warrior and a statement, he never departed from his books. He brought So when he would go on a trip, it took him 400 camels to carry his entire library of 117,000 volumes. And here's the thing. He had the camels trained because every camel had, like he had it so organized that every camel knew where they were because the, when they would travel, they would travel in alphabetical order. And so whoever was leading each camel, if the Grand Vizier needed volume whatever, they knew exactly which camel it was because they all went by order. I mean, that's organization, isn't it? Probably a little overboard, uh, but you know, I guarantee you if he wanted to find a book, he could find a book. So the idea of organization is not bad, as long as it is organization for our relationship with Jesus Christ. How important that is. I close with this. There's a famous revivalist of days gone by, although not that too far gone by, depending on how old you are. Uh, His name was Leonard Ravenhill, and he would write books on revival, and very passionate, very stir up, you know, and he made this statement, which is interesting, that I just came across recently about organized religion and church, church. He said, Sunday morning attendance shows how popular the church is. Sunday night attendance shows how popular the preacher is. Wednesday prayer meeting shows how popular God is. I I, I thought that was good. Now, but here's, here's what's interesting is, remember this. Attendance, you know, there's, there's certain things, and we'll close with this. There's certain things that are good that are part of structure in our walk with God. Prayer is important. Giving, you know, our finances is important. There's a place for fasting. And there's other things too, like soul winning. And um, there's, there's several other things that are very important. But understand this, that Those things, again, going back to this idea of legalism versus militant, while God gives us structure, folks, it is our relationship with Jesus Christ that matters the most. Cultivating that relationship. And whatever whatever you need to work on, maybe you need to work on prayer. And and prayer is you've been neglecting prayer. And you're really, if you're going to have a good walk with God, you've got to pray more. But the danger is, you can become legalistic about prayer. Say, okay, I got to say my prayers, and, and and all of a sudden it's like, okay, I got to I got to spend forty five minutes in prayer every day, or I'm not pleasing God. Wait a minute. Again, organized religion is is simply there's order, but the bottom line is, and I want you to see it this way: it's organized relationship. That's all it is. That's what God wants for you. That's what God wants for me. And I pray and I trust that you are part of the true church. I'm going to close with one verse. Turn to Revelation 19 and we'll dismiss. I know I'm going on overtime right here. So you, you're, I'm on the clock. 
You can charge me extra. Look at Revelation 19 and verse 4. Or verse... Real quickly. Verse 7. Revelation 19, 7. This is the culmination of those who are part of the true organized church. The universal church. People who are born again, washed in the blood. And he said, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come. And his wife... Now, if you're part of the church, you're part of what's called the Bride of Christ. You are a saint. You are part of the church. You are a church. Whether you're part of a local church or not, you're part of the church. And it says, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Is that... Where do we get that fine linen? It is from Jesus Christ. Paul said, I don't have my own righteousness, but the righteousness which is of Jesus Christ. So today I want to ask you, are you part of the true church? I don't care if you're a member of Bible Baptist Church in Upper Darby. That doesn't automatically mean that you are a member of the true church. Better to be a member of the true church and not Bible Baptist Church. But if you are part of the true church, you really should be involved in genuine, organized relationship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I'm so grateful that you organized the church, that first century assembly of believers, uh, the, the one that we're looking at at Philippi. And as we begin to delve into this and learn about this church and what your instruction was to them, uh, we're going to see, Father, some things that will help us in our relationship with you. I pray that uh, if there's anyone here today that has not become a part of the true church, they've not been born again, they've not, they're, they're not saints, they're not in Christ Jesus, my prayer is that they would get saved so they can be a part of what you are doing in this earth as you build your church. And we ask for your blessing in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stand.